0: Co Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, two rematches, two very different outcomes. That's what happened over the weekend in America's two largest MMA promotions. Bilal Muhammad and Vicente Luque ran it back from their original fight way back in 2016 on Saturday in the UFC. Luque had won the first meeting via first round KO, this time... It was a decision win for Bilal Muhammad. Over in Bellator, AJ McKee rematched with Patricio Pitbull after their fight in the final of the Bellator Featherweight Grand Prix from last year. The first time, it was a first-round submission win for AJ McKee. This time, it was a unanimous decision win for Pitbull. I guess, uh I probably know the answer to this already, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. What surprised you the most over the weekend?
1: Well, I'll tell you one thing. When you lay it out like that, first round stoppages, first time, decision victory the other way in the rematch, you know Jose Aldo was sitting home at the couch being like, see, I'm telling you, you give me that bastard Conor McGregor again, and it's going to be a different story. Yeah. I've been saying this for like five years now. Uh, the, it's the, the the weekend of doing it again, brother, you know? And, and maybe it just goes to show that it's just because you, you you got one in the first fight doesn't mean that you're going. Maybe this is the argument in favor of the he was the better
0: man tonight strategy. Hmm. Yeah.
1: When it comes to a post fight interview after a loss. You know what? I. You
0: know what I like to say about this also? That's why they have the fights. Yeah. Love to say that one. It's one of my favorite ones. That's why they have the fights. Here's what
1: struck me the most, though, about both of these rematches is how little fun I had watching them.
0: Yeah, neither one of them was a great fight. So I guess we say that by way of introduction, that we're going to be talking about those fights a great deal on this episode of the co-main event podcast. There's also some reports, some rumors out there that John Jones and Stipe Miocic might get something on the books for the summer. So we're also going to be talking about that. Uh, I don't know if that sets us up for like a great tease for what the rest of the episode is going to be about. You know, talking about how not not fun the two fights we're going to focus on were. Can can you confirm
1: or deny rumors that Jon Jones and Stipe Miocic started thinking real hard about agreeing to a July second fight in the UFC once they heard that the ten year CME Patreon meetup is going to be there? Chad, true story. This weekend, I was in uh, a local tavern here in Missoula, Montana. Uh, a mutual friend of ours came up to me, and he was like, hey, what's this I hear about the CME meetup? What are the details? Uh, you know, he's f- a friend of the podcast, listener of the podcast. I told him the details. He went back over to his table with his wife, got his phone out, came back five minutes later, hid book plane tickets. Oh, wow. That's that's the kind of spirit we need and, frankly, expect to see at the CME 10-year meetup.
0: Man, you ain't kidding. Uh, I guess this is as good a time to any. To remind everyone that you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. Uh, Don't forget to go out and follow us on Instagram at CME if you nasty and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash co-main event. This show, as you know, drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. But if you think we're having fun right now, brothers and sisters, you absolutely need to check out what's going on over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben folks and I are party rocking over there with three additional podcasts every single week. Ben just tipped it some very exciting news this week. As everybody knows, the co-main event podcast 10th anniversary is coming up this year. Actually, it's next month. It's in May. And we had been talking about trying to have a gathering, trying to have a get-together to celebrate the 10th anniversary with some of the beloved patrons of the Co-Main Event Podcast. You know what, Ben? I think people thought we were bullshitting. Uh,
1: to be fair, we also thought that there was a good chance we might be bullshitting. Yeah,
0: well, guess what, motherfucker? It's actually happening. The CME's mm-hmm. 10-year anniversary meetup. It's going down for real this summer. We're going to do it in Vegas. The weekend of July 2nd, right around the same time as I believe it's UFC 276, will be happening. And I, I guess if the people want the details, if they want to find out how they can come hang with us in Vegas that weekend, you got to go sign up for the Patreon. Patreon.com slash co-main event. That's where you find us. We're dropping three additional podcasts every single week over there. And we're planning vacations for everybody. Yep. So mm-hmm. it's... uh. It is a, a hell of a ride. It's worth every penny. We have a patronage tier for every budget. And to hear you tell it, it sounds like people are jumping on pretty fast. So uh, yeah. don't dilly-dally, I guess, is my advice.
1: Yeah. You want to get those tickets and those hotel, hotel reservations booked. And uh, just after that, bring plenty of sunscreen and zero shirts. Because it's going to be that kind of party. You know what I'm saying?
0: We got music this week from our guys, Foreign Cash, that's C-A-C-H-E, an L.A.-based production duo. If you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more of their stuff over at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash. Uh, We're pleased to be able to share their music on the show, so check them out if you like them. And again, that's Foreign Cash, and the word cash is C-A-C-H-E. Three rounds, as usual this week in the co event podcast, in round number one, if your plan is to get paid a million dollars every time you fight and hold all the cards in the negotiations with Bellator, man, you really got to win the fights. AJ McKee yeah. learned that the hard way this weekend. And in round number two, Bilal Muhammad extended his unbeaten streak to eight fights on Saturday in the UFC. But is the fighting style enough to truly get everybody to remember the name? And in round number three, man, let's get something on the books. John Jones, Stepe Miocic, 4th of July weekend. Sounds good to me. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Last week, Ben and I told you all that the showers at our respective houses are full Of Fulton and Rourke stuff. I love it and I use it every day. The body wash, the face wash, the deodorant, the moisturizing oil, all that stuff is in heavy rotation in my life. Fulton and Rourke's products smell good, they feel good, they make you look good, but you don't have to take our word for it. Fulton and Rourke has won awards for their grooming products in GQ and men's health, and they've been featured in outlets ranging from the Wall Street Journal to Good Housekeeping to Outside Magazine. It's the good stuff we wouldn't say it was if it wasn't. Put simply, it's the good shit, man. Ben, what do you got, coach?
1: It's the good shit. You know what you call it when you can win awards in Outside Magazine and also Good Housekeeping? Yeah versatility yep that's what you call that's something for everybody because nobody likes those flyaways you got to smooth those down everybody likes to to, to smell nice feel good that's just that i feel like is something that all of humanity can agree on is fulton and rourke products i
0: agree tons of cool stuff going on at fulton and rourke if you want to check it out for yourself cme listeners can save 15 percent on their first purchase with the coupon code if you nasty all one word if you nasty Fulton and Rourke.com, That's where you want to go. First question this week comes to us from our guy, David E. Lauderette. Have you noticed David Lauderette has added this middle initial recently. Yeah,
1: It's it's like a John L. Sullivan kind of thing.
0: Either that, or he just got his doctorate in something. So now he's David E. Lauderette. I don't think that's how that works. I don't, I don't think that's how advanced degrees work. He writes, ha ha, Corey, come on, man. <laughs> Why you got to point it out like that, man? Have you ever seen a single Dundasso VHS tape? Anyway, it definitely looks like if Corey had played that off a little better, it would have taken Frankie Trigg another few seconds to stop the fight, and it would have made it to the fourth round, where if it stopped, Corey would almost surely be a million dollars further along on his journey toward financial independence. Discourse. Now, of course, we're talking about Corey Anderson here. Yep. uh, Not made clear by the good Dr. David E. Lauderay, but he was out there fighting Vadim Nemkov in the final of the Bellator Light Heavyweight Grand Prix on Saturday. This the co-main right underneath AJ McKee and Patricio Pitbull, uh, and it seemed like Corey Anderson was about to cash in. It seemed like yeah. he was about to win the title, about to get the giant check, and then uh, he's on top of Nemkov. He's throwing elbows. He misses one, kind of gets off balance, falls forward, ends up headbutting Nemkov uh, right in the dome piece, uh, opens up a big cut over one of the champion's eyes, and immediately he tells Frank Trigg about it. Yeah, which is they admirable. both
1: told Frank Trigg about it, and yes, but
0: Dave, the good
1: doctor David E. Lauderette does make a good point here because maybe if you don't initially react, throwing your head back, clutching the the place on your head that you have collided with Vadim Nemkov's skull, maybe he doesn't notice it right away because. Nemkov reacts, but he's on the bottom and getting punched. And so you could have just maybe kept a little smothering pressure on him, stayed tight to him, not giving him a chance to to make his reaction clear. And maybe you do get away with that because it's not like he would have had to go too much longer in order to get it to the scorecards there. And it does feel like this is... Somehow the most heartbreaking result that could have happened for Corey Anderson, more so maybe even than getting just like completely knocked out because he was he was winning, Chad. He would have won if he hadn't inadvertently headbutted the guy. And here's one. I think maybe this is an episode where we might end up talking a little bit about MMA's sometimes liberal use of the phrase inadvertent Mm -hmm. when it comes to illegal strikes. But this is one where it clearly is inadvertent. He was not trying to do the thing that he did, which is land his head against Vadim Nemkov's head. And yet, it it opens up that cut, and you're, you're so close to having gone far enough into the fight where it won't matter, where we'll go, we'll go to the scorecards anyway, you'll still get the million bucks. And to see Corey Anderson sort of realizing that maybe, maybe this was the worst possible way for things to end here it he he could tell he really wanted to still celebrate he still felt like he had proved that he was the most dominant fighter and yet there was this thing
0: yeah uh
1: not as a danaso expert what do you advise here if somebody should find themselves in this situation what do you do i
0: mean you got to play it off a little cooler than that right you got to just kind of keep going as though nothing has happened uh, you mentioned this is heartbreaking for Corey Anderson is also a mess for Bellator that was hoping yeah. to wrap up its light heavyweight Grand Prix on Saturday, as so often happens in mixed martial arts when there is a foul chaos reigns supreme. You got Maro Ranallo on the broadcast talking about how it's about to be a TKO win for Corey Anderson. Bellator gets the big check made out. And brings it up in the cage like they're about to give it to Anderson. And then once word gets out, oh, wait, no, it's going to be a no contest. Then they like they turned the check around like (laughs) like no one was going to see it. They just turned it around and kind of like lean it up against the cage over there, like tucking it behind the couch or whatever. And we'll just hope nobody sees it. Uh, so this is a this is a bad deal all the way around for Bellator and for Corey Anderson, I assume probably a pretty sh- shitty deal for Vadim Nemkov as well, although uh, he gets to come back and probably fight Corey Anderson again as the champion uh, here here, though, is Corey Anderson's quote about it from MMA fighting, taking it like a real American wrestler. He says, I'm over it now. I mean, I'm not. It just happened. It just happened. He's over it already. I'm over it now, said Anderson. I mean, I'm not over it, over it. But a okay, coach. Right. Can I read the quote, please? <laughs> can I just read the
1: goddamn quote? Well, I'm going to react to every clause in each sentence.
0: I'm, Go on, though. I'm over it now, said Anderson. I mean, I'm not over it, over it. But a coach of mine told me in college, you got five minutes to sulk. I had those five minutes. I jumped in the huh. shower. Nothing we can do about it now. It's very upsetting, especially because I broke him. Uh but that's it, basically. Just like how uh, did we
1: arrive at five minutes? Is the sulking time.
0: He took us five minutes to to feel bad for himself, and now he's gonna move forward.
1: I mean, a coach if a coach in college tells you that, he probably was talking about a amateur collegiate athletic competition. <laughs> I wasn't talking about a fight with a big-ass check for a million dollars on the line. I'd I'd say that gets you at least 10 minutes.
0: It's one of the most American wrestler quotes I've ever read. (laughs) had my five minutes to feel bad, and now I'm fine.
1: I mean, I'm I'm not fine, fine,
0: fine, but I'm fine.
1: (laughs) I'm not over it, but, yeah, I mean... That That's that's tough to deal with. You, you're you not going to show up and tell me that you're over it, that you, you showered that one off and you're over it and have everybody believe you because that million-dollar check would have sure been nice to cash. Yeah. And in a fight where you felt like you were dominating. <laughs> and the hell of it is, you know, he shows up afterwards at the press conference and he's like, I'm the best light heavyweight in the world. I feel like I've proved it. You know, you look at what's going on over in the UFC's light heavyweight division. You could see how... There's a case to be made with the way light heavyweight is just as far as who is technically in the division across the sport of MMA. There's a case to be made that he's right. And yet, if it ends like that, you don't really get to make the case. Yeah. Like you kind of get to make it what it, like he's trying to do. But you don't really get to make like it's it's a little bit since you're in Bellator, it's gonna be a little bit of a tough case to make anyway, because the way people are gonna do you, just knowing how MMA fans are. But having that ending just kind of undercuts it just a bit too much. Yeah. That's got to hurt. I don't think that you you get you have one good shower and you come out of that
0: one feeling okay about it. Well, yeah, it's five minutes. Uh the the worst part is like now you gotta come back and fight Vadim Nemkov again after you already did all your stuff you know you showed him all your stuff and now you got to yeah, come back that's and like fight su- him again but this not like this
1: is a surprise it's not like like vadim nemkov is like i just didn't expect that son of a bitch to wrestle me well you know like <laughs>
0: now he's got he's got like 20 minutes of uh, of tape now that he goes back there and he can figure shit out he and fedor down in the tape room over there in starya school uh with the telestrator figuring out the exact defenses to all your stuff
1: I bet you anything, the tape room at Fedor's gym in Starry Oscill, it's like when you had a substitute teacher wheel in the TV uh, during high school and it's just like strapped down onto a big metal stand and a bunch of different, like, it's got one VHS player on it, but that one doesn't work, so they just put another VHS player on top of that one. That's 100% what we're working with over there.
0: Next question this week comes to us from, I believe, the famous actor Fred Savage. Okay. who writes, So somehow I find myself on the couch watching the early prelims of a JSF card. Some dude named Close is fighting some other dude named Jenkins. It becomes abundantly clear that Jenkins don't belong in there. He doesn't move his head or his feet, doesn't keep his hands up, doesn't even really fight back. Shit, he doesn't even do Dundasso right as he is taken down to spike-grabbing defense. For better or worse, he does have a hell of a chin because he eats shots over and over until the fight is finally stopped. It made me wonder, as a non-sheet-eating wild man who doesn't see many prelims, does this shit happen a lot in the need to fill content are there often dudes fighting in the ufc that clearly shouldn't be because that my friends was not a good look it seems really dangerous to match people up like that and i hope jenkins is okay now this obviously is uh, Drakkar close coming back from his own injury after getting shoved during a weigh in by jeremy stevens last year he's fighting brandon jenkins on an undercard fight at this ufc event on saturday night uh Drakar Close ends up winning by TKO just 33 seconds into the second round. So this beating didn't actually go on as long as it might have. But uh, this is a sort of a special case. Not that I want to make excuses for any kind of matchmaking or guys out there looking like they don't belong. But like Dracar Close kind of got a he got a get back fight here because he, okay. he was he had had a tough time. He was coming in. He's a big favorite. According to the odds
1: last week. Biggest favorite on the card, I believe. As
0: you and I both saw. So, like, we all kind of looked around and knew that this, let's just say, was a fight Drakkar Close was supposed to win. Now, that said, anytime you do 42 events a year and you have 500, 600 fighters under contract at any one one time in the UFC, any given time, uh, you are increasing the talent pool so much that you're going to have... You know, people who wouldn't have been in the UFC five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it might be. And I have often questioned as we watch this stuff are there more mismatches now than there used to be, just according to the odds? But I have also been corrected on a fact by some people who say that they have run the numbers on this thing. And at least in theory, the UFC fights, according to the pre fight odds, are more competitive now than they ever have been. So I don't want to give the false impression that it seems like. There are more one-sided beatdowns now than there used to be. But all of this uh, creates a sort of a heady brew, if you will, where there are people fighting in the UFC earlier in their careers. There are people fighting in the UFC uh, who wouldn't have been there when there were fewer events and smaller rosters. And in some cases, I think like we saw for Drakar Close uh, over the weekend, it was kind of a situation where it's like, okay, here was a guy who historically in his career had been pretty good, a pretty good lightweight. He had a tough break with this thing with Jeremy Stevens. He says he still needs to have surgery. Uh, Would be great to get him back on the winning end of things. Obviously, I'm speculating. I don't know for sure that's what UFC matchmakers did, but reading between the lines, it doesn't seem too outside of the realm of, of imagination that that is what happened here.
1: Well, also, I believe this was a replacement opponent, right? Like I don't know exactly how much how much time, how much lead time the UFC had to find a replacement opponent, but Close was supposed to fight Nicholas Mata. Oh, that's right. And that was the original matchup, which seems like a little bit more of a competitive matchup. And so one guy falls out, then you gotta go find somebody else. And see, if there is an argument to be made that you're gonna see some mismatches in the UFC on the prelims, I think that's more likely to be an explanation, is that when they have to go in search of a late replacement, they have to fill a hole in the card and they don't want to take from an existing matchup somewhere else because then they're just creating another hole that they're going to have to fill. They want to get somebody either who isn't currently signed or uh, here in Brandon Jenkins case, somebody who has, you know, like maybe one UFC fight prior to that, uh, but isn't booked uh, against anybody else. And you want to slot him in there in short notice and maybe you would look at the skill and experience or at least like high level experience disparity and go, eh, this one looks like it's tilted heavily in one direction. But the UFC matchmakers are going, we're trying to keep him on the card, especially when it's somebody like your close who hasn't fought in two years, who's dealing with all those injuries stuff. You know, I think he said that from that Jeremy Stevens incident, he got his show money but that's just saying he got half his paycheck when he wasn't able to fight because of something the other guy did. Yeah. And and that was like a year ago. So then you got going to turn around and have to tell this guy, oh, your opponent pulled out and we're not sure we can find somebody around your skill level who who would make sense as a competitive matchup for you on this timeline uh, to keep you on this card. You can't do that to him. I could see how the matchmakers feel like we got to get this guy a fight. And I remember talking to the the UFC matchmakers back when it was Joe Silva and and Sean Shelby, and they were still, it seemed like, smarting from the public criticism of the Chad Mendes, Cody McKenzie fight. And their defense in that one was we had to find Chad Mendez a replacement on short notice. He'd had another fight. I uh, can't remember who the original opponent was. Guy fell out. And we gotta keep him on that car because he's paid for a training camp. If we can keep him on there, we want to. We know, we understand the financial necessity of him being able to fight on that date. Cody McKenzie said he would take it. We said we we even told him we thought it would be a bad fight for him to take. He still wanted it. Chad Mendez goes out there and trucks him, and everybody goes, mismatch, what are you guys doing? And their answer was, what we're doing is trying to keep the train on the tracks. And they're under that p- tremendous pressure, even more so now, because of what the UFC calendar looks like. It's just such a breakneck pace for them to keep up with. And with all those other considerations, I could see how they were probably willing to take any warm body. But at the same time, it's, I don't know if Fred Savage is being a little... it might be a little hard here on Brandon Jenkins, who clearly, you know, he... he he got tooled up in that one pretty quickly, but he was a tough guy. Didn't exactly look like he didn't know what he was doing or anything. Like He he had some moments where he was trying to fire back there and was doing okay. But Jakar Close, good fighter. So maybe we don't need to act like this was just a a premeditated murder attempt by UFC matchmakers.
0: It does look like uh, Nicholas Mata pulled out back in January. Well, okay, and they put Brandon Jenkins in there. But I feel like your point is still uh, well made. And uh, I don't know. It's it's probably we're going a little rough both on uh, Brandon Jenkins and matchmaking here. I think in this in this particular email, even though this was like coming into it, like we said, uh, Dracar close maybe the biggest favorite on the whole card. So it's not like this was a surprise. In, yeah, in terms of what happened,
1: I did want to point out. I don't know if you caught this in the the quiet arena. You could hear a little bit more from the corners, and after. Drakkar close that opened up on him. And I think they counted like 31 strikes landed in just a couple seconds time as he was just unloading on Brandon Jenkins and Jenkins somehow survives. It looks like he's going to be knocked out any moment, survives it. And it's getting near the end of the first round. And you can hear Brandon Jenkins' corner say, okay, let's get some back now. And you're like, "Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Like the guy just has had his head thumped all over the place in this first round, doing good to survive. And you're like, okay, now it's our turn. I'm like, I don't know. That's I don't know if that's super helpful yeah. right in that moment.
0: I'm actually I'm gonna write down let's get some back now as well You're gonna I, add uh, that
1: to to fight your heart out?
0: Yeah, fight your heart off, heart out for these last ten minutes. Uh next question comes this week from Ryan Robinson, who writes you know Ryan Robinson loves to start with a quote. He starts with He does Behold I saw a white horse, and his name it said upon him was death, and hell followed with him.
1: Okay. That's uplifting.
0: (laughs) Tiyoshi Kosaka fought his retirement fight on the weekend at Ryzen. Any thoughts or memories of the former UFC heavyweight? What do you think about him having a a fight in front of a big crowd with a bit of dignity to say goodbye? TK, Ben. Remember TK? Used Uh to uh, fight in the old school UFC. This guy fought everywhere. Fought in rings. Fought in the UFC. Fought a couple times, I believe, in pride. Uh, Had been on a terrible run as of late. Uh, In his career had been just three and six. I'm going to check the age 52 years old. Yeah, he's fucking 52 uh, on TK comes out there uh, over the weekend in Ryzen and beats Mikio Ueda via TKO or I'm sorry, KO in two minutes and five seconds. Uh, You know, a little bit of a of a nondescript guy, the kind of guy who could get lost to history, I guess. His TK, But like, uh, especially back in those early UFC days, even though he wasn't going to win them all, this was a dude who was regarded as very tough, was a tough fight for anybody and, uh, you know, would go out there and 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 serve up a, a quality matchup. So, you know, probably not a future Hall of Famer, but at the same time, a, a guy who made a little bit of an impact, especially during those kind of pioneer days of the of the early UFC.
1: Yeah, he basically had an entire career before most people listening to the sound of my voice knew what MMA was or had ever even heard the term. So give him a little rec- a credit for that. Also give him some credit for this guy. You know, he's 52 now. Uh, in 2016, so he would have been mid-40s, he fought fucking Baruto in the Rising Grand Prix. Then the next year, he enters the Rising Grand Prix again, a year older, fights fucking Crow
0: Cop. Hmm.
1: Come on, man. Like, that's, a, that's a tough son of a bitch right there. So you're telling me uh, maybe
0: Ryzen was like, maybe maybe we owe this guy one. Maybe we should you know get, him one, get him a win. I,
1: I do think sometimes when it comes to saying farewell to a fighter, some of the Japanese fight promotions have done a better job of that. Or just have maybe cared to do a better job of that. Because I remember being at that Dynamite uh, New Year's Eve event uh, and it was... Uh, Masato's retirement fight from kickboxing and he fought Andy Sauer who had fought a uh, a few times before in his career and I I believe he lost the decision there but there were a ton of other fighters who we might consider to be more notable like uh Aoki is one where Aoki broke Dude's arm and then gave him the Stockton Hey Buddy afterwards. You know, Overeem was on that card. Gagar Marisasi was on that card. It was the finals of the Super Hulk tournament. But Masato was the main event and they did a big sort of farewell to him all that week and he was treated like a big star and uh, they just made sure that we we're paying appropriate attention to this send off. Now, the tricky part of doing that in fight sports is that a goodbye is often a preliminary. Gesture from many fighters. You know, you don't always know when it's actually going to be the goodbye. Maybe though, if you make a bigger deal about saying farewell, maybe it makes it harder for them to be like, actually, I changed my mind. And people are going to be like, motherfucker, we had confetti coming down from the ceiling Mm -hmm. for you.
0: We got you a sheet cake in the back. (laughs) Yeah. Once we get the sheet cake, the retirement is final. Yeah, that's all we we
1: booked the private room in the back of the pizza parlor for afterwards. We we can't get the deposit on that back, man. This is final. You are retired.
0: All right, I'm going to squeeze this last one in here from Mr. Burrito Bowl, who writes, Have you heard the news? Elon Musk watched 20 minutes of Bloodsport and decided to purchase 100% of the UFC. His first move is to eliminate title belts, and then parenthetically, because it'll free up fighters to do super fight type fights easier and redo the scoring system. The way Musk sees it, if a fight is pretty close, it should just be considered a draw. No more arbitrarily (laughs) calling one fighter the winner and one the loser unless it's the type of fight where everyone is just like, yeah, this guy clearly won. Are you in favor of either or both of these changes? Elon wants to know what you'd tweak about his new vision. Uh, I'm going to come out and say the removal of title belts and declaring a vast majority of the fights draws would not be great for the, uh, for the respective popularity of mixed martial arts. It's just, I feel like the, uh, the title belts and the idea that we could get a definitive answer to some of our questions is kind of both sort of, sort of important to, uh, what people like about this sport and doing it that way would kind of take both those things away.
1: I mean, you're on record as wanting more title belts. You want a TV title, more maybe an more. international title.
0: Regional. I want regional titles. I want there to be a Southeast junior heavyweight champion running around here fighting on the FightPass.com at 3 p.m. on a Thursday. I'm, I want more belts, man.
1: You want there to be like a daytime Emmy version of the the, the UFC belt.
0: Yeah. Like, I want like a, uh, you know, hardcore title. Mm-hmm. Uh Tag team titles, see, whatever we got.
1: Yeah, I the the only advantage I could see, to if nobody clearly wins or finishes the other guy as a draw is that you'd save a lot of win bonuses. That's true. You know, from the, from looking at it from the perspective of the bottom line, you could probably still get a lot of fighters to agree to that deal because he'd be like, hey, you're going to finish all your fights, right? Yeah. You can win all these. You can put all these guys away. You don't even need to worry about it. Those other guys need to worry about it. And they'll be like, sure, shit, I'll sign that. Maybe, though, if that's the case, what we could bring back is the old school boxing tradition of the newspaper decision.
0: Yes. Yeah. Except you know, we'll call it the co-main event podcast decision. We can just say mm-hmm. who won with authority.
1: See, now you, you get into a situation where you have like, okay, this guy, it was technically a draw, but he won a Twitter decision. On that one. Everybody on Twitter said he won. Yeah. Uh,
0: Maybe like really clearly articulating the financial positives of this idea is not something we should do. Not not something we should say out loud (laughs) lest we're overheard by the people who run the company. We don't want them to know they could save even more money if they just did away with winners and losers.
1: What about if every single fight in the UFC was people fighting for a UFC contract?
0: What if everyone just got a participation trophy and so all of the uh, all of the MAGA like right wing types could just lose their fucking minds. There you go.
1: There you go. You're just you're you're taking a let's troll everybody approach to fight promotion.
0: Yeah. Well, it works for Jake Paul. So why not? Uh, That's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have a question, a comment or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one
1: the earth we made this curse
0: carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not but she did
1: and in the end what will i become
0: senwa saga hellblade 2
1: play it now with game pass
0: well ben there's a lot to unpack about patricio pitbull's unanimous decision win over aj mckee on friday in bellator I guess first, let's talk about what this means for AJ McKee. It had been a hot topic of conversation last week after we found out that McKee and Bellator had had a hard time coming to an agreement on a new contract. Uh, McKee had been on Ariel Helwani talking about how he wanted to get paid a million dollars for every fight, and he was talking about maybe eventually going to the UFC. You and I mentioned on Friday during the Power Hour that when so much of your appeal is based on potential and based on being undefeated and based on the unknown, I guess, that we don't really know how good you might actually be, that it was vitally important for A.J. McKee to keep winning the fights. So I guess as an opening question, I will ask you, how much in your opinion do you think A.J. McKee lost on Friday when he dropped this decision to Pitbull?
1: You know, kind of a lot because not only does it hurt you to lose to the guy you just beat, to have no longer have that undefeated record to lean on, but also just not a whole lot of note really even happened in the fight. Which I was thinking afterwards about the extreme surprised face that AJ McKee scene-making, instantly memeable face when he hears the decision. And some of that maybe, you know, his dad is over there telling him that he thinks he really got this one. Maybe they felt like this is exactly my plan coming to fruition. This is exactly how I wanted this fight to go. And uh, so I, I feel like I got every round in the books or whatever. The best argument I could make in his favor is that, okay, sure, I didn't do a whole lot in that fight, but neither did he. That's the best the best case you could make for him feeling like he should have got that decision. Because so much of the fight was him kind of standing and inviting Pitbull to charge recklessly at him. And then when Pitbull wouldn't go for that, uh, you know, trying to throw out one strike here or there at a time and uh, often enough getting countered pretty hard by Pitbull. And it just like, it's... You get an opportunity when you win that whole Grand Prix. You, you, you're you the young up-and-coming guy, undefeated record. You just beat this Bellator mainstay, a guy who's been there, it seems, and uh, been a, a fixture in Bellator forever. And now you got a whole bunch of fresh attention maybe that you didn't have on the way coming up. And so it's an opportunity to do something with those new eyeballs you got. And it felt like it was just sort of wasted that he it seemed like he fought feeling like, okay, now everybody's got to come to me. Yeah, And it just it did not work out that way, uh, especially against a really like smart, experienced fighter like Pitbull.
0: Well, that was one of the things that occurred to me, and it has widely been repeated in the wake of this fight now that uh, Pitbull is undefeated in rematches, which is uh, a pretty interesting accolade for a guy like that to have. But did you feel like as you were watching this that Pitbull kind of tricked AJ McKee into having a Patricio Pitbull style of fight? That like, that, you know, what resulted here was five very close individual rounds. And I've kind of felt like you could have scored it any which way. Uh, and I don't mean that as an apology for AJ McKee or like an explanation for his extreme surprised face as the decision was read. Because I feel like in that kind of fight that could have been scored any kind of way, you better try to make as as much effort to be sure as you can and so i don't know that he, he really had a lot of reason to be that surprised when it was over but like one of the things i came away from the fight feeling was that like mckee kind of let pitbull control the tempo in a way and i thought that the overall action because of that really favored pitbull did you feel the same way yeah it, i mean
1: there were moments where it seems like Okay, McKee has some physical advantages here. Just like his control of the range should be better, yeah, or should be more of a factor in this fight, and it wasn't. And it made me wonder if some of that could have been cured with just more activity. But it also seemed like the the lack of activity came from like a mindset where he thought this is me controlling this fight, and to the and and maybe to him and to his corner and to his his. his coaches and his dad and everything it seemed like yes this is what we wanted but what everybody else was seeing was hmm, we we were expecting more activity than this just more output than this and there were a couple times honestly where it was apparent or at least more apparent when he would come in and pitbull would land that right hand and pretty early on pitbull managed to establish that right hand and it was clearly giving him something to think about and dropped him or you know, at least clearly hurt him one time uh, and was backing him off with it a few times. And meanwhile, when McKee was throwing stuff, even when he was throwing good stuff, Pitbull's doing a little better job of no-selling it. And when it's close like that, and the, the judges are looking for damage and they're looking for the impact of the strikes, they're thinking that guy is making more of a difference when he lands than you are. Yeah. And you're just not doing enough to, to dissuade them from that because there are long periods where we're both just standing there looking at each other.
0: Yeah, it was weird because I came away from the fight feeling like AJ McKee was he was obviously the bigger fighter. Uh he was he was obviously uh more athletic. He obviously has the takedowns and wrestling ability and he just didn't didn't do that much. He just got like lulled into a a slow-paced controlled kind of like methodical tempo, which I thought really suited Pitbull and whether or not that was Pitbull doing stuff To keep AJ McKee at bay, or whether it was what you said that AJ McKee like thought he was controlling the fight, I don't know. But I thought it was a pace and a style that really benefited Pitbull. And now here you are, lost your title, lost your undefeated uh, status, and Pitbull is the champ. I did want to talk for a second about Antonio McKee, who is a guy that uh, you're quite familiar with from working with him at the IFL for a lot of years, and obviously he had his own very successful. MMA career, uh, and is AJ McKee's dad, and is his primary coach, his head coach, is there something kind of like inherently dangerous about having your dad be your coach, about having you know, taking this approach to these fights. And I guess it's maybe it's not right to single Antonio McKee out because we have seen this, we see this frequently from corners in MMA. But like when he told him before the fifth round that he had him ahead on every round and kind of told him between every round, I had you winning that one. Uh, I thought that was weird. I thought that was odd. And then you you send the kid out there for the last round. I might've tried to instill a bit more urgency in him prior to that last round. But like the fact that Antonio McKee was such a successful MMA fighter and the fact that he's AJ McKee's dad, I think probably led to a lot of that surprised face that AJ McKee made when it was over, because he had been assured, not just by an authority figure or a mentor in the sport, but by his, his own father the entire time that he was winning. And so like to lose the decision, not just lose it, lose the unanimous decision uh, might have been legitimately very surprising for him. Yeah, I believe it was. I I don't know if, though,
1: you can say that that is a direct consequence of it being your dad who's coaching you. Because, I, like, I could see the argument there where you'd say the dad is too close to it. The same argument that we had when people who are, you know, have... Their coach is somebody they're in a relationship with, yeah. which happens a lot in MMA, honestly. Like a lot of uh, female fighters are in relationships with their coaches. Or we saw it before. Remember when uh, didn't Misha Tate take a bunch of shit for telling Brian Caraway to just coast? Yes. Th- th- thought that he was up. And it, then everybody was like, oh, yeah, you, you cost him that fight because he went out there without a sense of urgency in the next round like sure it could happen that if you guys have this re- close relationship it will cloud your judgment you're going to think that they're doing better than they are but most coaches have a close relationship with their fighters and so of, even if it's not like a blood relative or you're in a relationship together they you just develop a close relationship over time so that they that's always a risk there where your coach could see Things in your favor that the judges are not seeing in your favor, just because they want you to win and they want you to do well, like that—that that could absolutely happen. I don't know if it's necessarily more likely to happen if you're coached by your dad. Like honestly, I would think that whatever disadvantages you would have of, of in that kind of situation being coached by your dad might be outweighed by your dad being super fucking experienced as an MMA fighter himself. That seems like that—that that would be a helpful thing. I think it's just that the kind of fight it was, they felt like okay, we we aren't in danger here. He's not doing enough. You're the champion. He's got to come get you. He's got to come take the belt from you. I think that if I had to, to just speculate wildly, I would say that might be more what they were thinking because it was the kind of fight where I could see anybody talking themselves into thinking that they won it. And yet I would go back and look at some of those rounds and be like, tell me which round he absolutely clearly no argument won. Yeah. Like just point out any rounds that where you think, okay, that one's an obvious one for AJ McKee. I just I don't know if there was one.
0: Yeah. Well, now we have an interesting situation because many of the things that AJ McKee had publicly cited as being his negotiating chips uh, with Bellator are gone, and we don't even know really what his contractual status is with Bellator. He had referred on Helwani's show to being covered by the champions clause. In Bellator. So I don't know if now the fact that he's lost the title, I don't even know if he's a free agent. He might Uh, be.
1: Scott Coker was asked afterwards and he said, no, he does not think so.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: So the kind of worst of all worlds there. Like, we still got you. Uh, The champion's clause has extended you, but not then released you once you're no longer
0: the champion. So I guess then the question becomes, both if you are Bellator and if you are AJ McKee, what do you do next? Like, if you're Bellator, do you do a trilogy here? Because now you've got an interesting thing happening with AJ McKee and Patricio Pitbull. And anytime Bellator can get itself into something interesting, it should try to do that. Uh, And you might have a third fight that people would actually tune in to watch because you've had these two... Uh, previous fights that were so different and you've had AJ McKee as potentially the hottest prospect in MMA and now has encountered his first adversity in his professional career Uh, and just how good uh, Pitbull is is another question which we didn't even address during this this round but it's still a legitimate thing to to wonder about where he stacks up in terms of like worldwide 145 pounders so like if you're Bellator do you try to get McKee and Pitbull together for a third fight if you're McKee, do you want that fight? Do you think about moving up? Like, what do you do? Like, You just get yourself into a very murky situation here in the wake of this this fight.
1: Well, he said that he feels like he's done at featherweight. And a guy his size, I could see why he would feel that cutting down to that weight class is not going to be a thing that he can just do indefinitely. Uh, maybe you can make the argument he should have gone up before this one and 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 maybe would have had a better uh, time of it but I especially after that being your second fight that being the rematch I can't feel like there's a ton of appetite out there for a third one you you, you wake up the next morning to a bunch of people going oh man we gotta run that one back it's one one can't wait Can't wait to settle this one with a rubber match. Like, I don't don't know, man. It
0: wasn't a great fight, but, like, I feel like the third one is maybe the most interesting thing you could do with A.J. McKee right now. I guess have him go up to 155 and potentially fight the other pit bull. But, like, just knowing now that they have split two fights and you could put together a good promotional package for it if you were Bellator. And just trying to see how A.J. McKee would approach that third fight. Because, like I said, during this round, I kind of felt like one of the reasons he lost this fight was that it was a slow-paced kind of boring fight. Like, A.J. McKee... To be more successful, I felt like needed more action, needed to push the pace, needed to use his his advantages in this fight, which I didn't really feel like he did. So uh even though the second one wasn't that great, I would I would definitely watch a third one. And if you're Bellator, I don't know what else you would do with the guy besides give him a another title shot at, at one fifty five, which is which might be viable, but would seem to be like the thing to do to me. I don't know.
1: Uh yeah, you put together a promo package, you're gonna be pulling a lot of clips from that first fight. I'm telling you that.
0: Uh, let's go ahead and do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week?
1: Well, Chad, I come to you now deep in grief because you know I was excited to see my guy, Chris Beast Boy Barnett. Yeah. Go out there. do his thing. For one thing, I have a bone to pick with ESPN Plus because I go back to watch this one to catch up with my fights on Sunday morning and I, I click on this fight, find the video of it. And I don't know how it looked on the live broadcast, but the way the video opens up when you go back to watch the replay on ESPN Plus is you see Chris Barnett entering the cage while the commentators like, some good dancing there from Chris Barnett. But the dancing is over. Hmm. Whatever might have happened is over. And so it's like, you're going to tell me that you guys had a camera pointed at that man when he was doing his uh, walkout dance routine and you did not include that? In the, the the fight that you post to ESPN Plus after that? Because are you fucking kidding me? That's half the reason I show up to a Chris Barnett fight.
0: Yeah, that's, that's short-sighted but right there.
1: Then, Martin Boudet... He goes out there and he just leans all over my man, Chris Barnett, using his big ass body, just, just using the, the big six foot four inch frame, whatever it is, smushing Chris Barnett all up against the cage, not letting him do anything fun, not giving him the space to to, to get loose do any of the cool shit that he knows how to do. And then on top of that, Chad, on top of that, he is going to land an illegal elbow directly to the back of the man's skull. As he is covering up all the legal parts of his head from strikes, he's just going to come straight down with that elbow right to the back of his head. Are you fucking kidding me? You would do that to this beautiful man? Because you have made yourself a powerful enemy today, Martin Boudet. You fucking kidding me? Wow. You fucking kidding me. Also, I, I alluded to it earlier, but uh, we just, we're just we just going to call everything an inadvertent foul now, like what, was he tra- what were you going to tell me that he was trying to do? If he inadvertently elbowed Chris Barnett in the back of the head there, you're saying that was inadvertent. What was he trying to do? Because the only thing he could see from there was the back of the guy's head. Or you're saying he was trying to, to hit him in the nose by way of the back of his skull? What was, the, what was the intent if it wasn't to hit him in the back of the head there? That's clearly an illegal strike, and you're throwing it on purpose. Like, if that's if that's inadvertent, how the hell did John Jones get that disqualification on his record? You tell me that, Chad.
0: Wow. Well, I can tell you're fired up. This is... Fucking <laughs> kidding me. This is as angry as I've heard you in a while. Are you fucking kidding me.
1: Don't let me catch you out there in the streets, Martin Boudet, because I will wait until I have gotten to a safe distance away from you, and I will talk scathingly about you to whoever happens to be standing <laughs> next to me.
0: Well, Ben, uh, how is it that every time there is an overt villain of the moment in combat sports. Someone that we can all look at and and say, well, this, this, this guy probably did something bad. This person probably, you know, has some, has some character issues. This is, this may not be the greatest person to have around. How is it that every time there is someone like that in the space, somebody in the UFC specifically takes the time To shout them out and pledge their undying support to this person and thank them for all the help and support over the years. You fucking kidding me with this? This week it was, uh, Munir Lozes who went out there, uh, and won his fight and then jumped on the mic and said, and I quote, I would love to thank my coaches and my brother, Daniel Kinahan. Without him, I would never be the man who I am today. Are you fucking kidding me? Like uh, the week that Daniel Kinahan gets sanctioned by the US government and basically we put out like a $5 million reward for this guy's arrest because of his believed ties to organized crime and drug trafficking and everything else. This is the week. You want to jump on the mic and thank that guy? Like nobody has ever mentioned Daniel Kinahan inside the Octagon before, to my knowledge. We've seen him like in a tweet with Darren Till. We've seen him with Tyson Fury. Conor McGregor has been photographed with various reputed members of his organization. But this week of all weeks, is the week we choose to bring this guy up on live television and then Lose is going to come to the press conference and act like he doesn't know that yeah. Daniel Kinahan has also been in the news for other reasons this <laughs> That's week. my favorite part. That's are you fucking kidding me? Like, how is it that we so consistently are always on the wrong side of everything like it doesn't matter who it is as long as there's a person in the news who's done something bad someone in the ufc will be like big big ups to that dude it's my favorite guy right there wouldn't be here without him shout out to that guy really like are you fucking kidding me like every single time it's unreal
1: and then being like oh is he in the is he in the news i i was i didn't know hadn't this is the 1st time hearing of it right now that's interesting
0: shout out by the way before we wrap this up to alan dawson from i believe the insider who showed up at the press conference and asked a string of heaters to uh to this fighter just to let him know that this was the lasting impression that he had left and then when they were like do you have any questions about the fight he was like no i don't have any questions about the fight (laughs) all right that is going to do it for round number one we'll be right back with round number two
1: Well, Chad, please tell me that you remember the name. Don't think of sitting there and telling me that you have forgotten the name. You must. You certainly must remember the name. And the name is, Chad? Are we talking about Bala Muhammad? Bala Muhammad. Yeah, I remember Remember the name. the name? Yeah. He went out there, got himself a, a dish of revenge served cold. Against Vicente Luque here in the main event of this UFC fight night. Um, this was, I'm going to say, and I'm going to say this because I like B- Bilal Muhammad and I, I want to put this in a positive light. This was a tactical yeah. performance. yeah, A very tactical win by Bilal Muhammad. And frankly, I got to also say a little bit of a surprising one because I thought that Vicente Luque... Might have his number here. I thought that Vicente Luque, who's been on a bit of a hot streak and looked like a real dangerous guy, was going to find a way to put him away here. And it was a smart performance on a few different levels by Bilal-, Bilal Muhammad. For one thing, he just frustrated the hell out of Vicente Luque at scene by never standing still very long. Yeah. And then when it seemed like maybe he would stand still, just when Vicente Luque was like, please stop moving so I can hit you in the face... Then, as soon as Vicente Luque sets the throw, he gets the takedowns. And got some absolute key takedowns here in this fight. However, I could also see how Vicente Luque would go home feeling a little bit upset after this one. Because pretty much every time he got taken down, he got back up. Didn't suffer a whole lot of damage while he was down there. uh, Never really was in too great a threat due to submissions or anything. Just didn't get back up quick enough and ended up letting Balaam Muhammad control him down there and then surprise him with by actually landing a few strikes on the feet, too.
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned that it was surprising. Vicente Luque actually copped to being surprised by it in the post-fight interview, saying that he wasn't ready for some of the stuff. Bilal Muhammad was doing. And Bilal Muhammad, to his credit, showed Vicente Luque a lot of different things on Saturday and and a lot of things that were different from their first fight. Like he had that constant back and forth movement. He had improved footwork. He was switching stances a lot. He got at least one takedown in every round. And the frequency of those takedown attempts increased as the fight wore on. So like I thought it was a nice win for Bilal Muhammad here, uh, though as you mentioned, there was a fair amount of criticism online after it was over, and that is the one thing that I wonder. Like clearly he is improving and has improved over the seven years since these first guys these guys first fought. Uh, he's won, you know, he's had eight eight fights in a row without a loss if you count the no contest against Leon Edwards, which is pretty good in the 170 pound division. And I think you have to respect Bilal Muhammad for. Uh, Making those improvements, making those adjustments, and at this point being a bona fide and legitimate serious contender in that division. I guess my question for you is: Is this? Does he look good after this? Like, is this the kind of fight that comes away improving your stock in this division? Because I just said all the positive things about it, and there were many. But are there? But were there more? Were the do the negatives? I guess the one negative kind of outweigh that, especially in a division where you're not the only one who's out here trying to get a shot at uh, Kamaru Usman.
1: Well, Chad, I don't need to tell you what is written in the divine scrolls of the CME wisdom on the sport of mixed martial arts. you flip, let's see, page three, four, oh, right here. It is generally better to win a professional cage fight than to lose it. So yeah,
0: That is true. That is correct.
1: That's the big thing. You know what I was thinking, actually? about this very topic is you know we'll sometimes talk about how the difficulty of just getting people to remember you. You go out, you do something good, you win your fight, whatever. 3 weeks later do people even remember that the fight happened? Do they do they remember? Do they remember the name? One might even say maybe it also works to your favor when you win a decision that people weren't exactly thrilled by in the moment when they were watching it. Maybe like later they even if it's forgettable, maybe especially if it's forgettable, they're kind of they just circle back to your Wikipedia page, look at it, and be like, "Oh, look at this! You got wins over Vicente Luque, and you know, like he's doing pretty well. Like they're you they're looking at your credentials, and it seems like it holds up. And maybe the further away from the actual fight you get, the less people care about how it was. You want it? Because I mean, I can't act like it was just super boring. One guy just doing one thing and stopping any action from taking place because it wasn't like it was it, altogether it seemed like a really smart game plan that he had like I'm not going to stand still long enough for Luke a to do his shit I'm going to force him to, to follow me around uh to be tr- constantly trying to track me down and then I'm going to sneak in some punches on him that way, the the kind that he doesn't feel like I should be able to land. I'm going to manage to land a surprising amount of those, which Blah Muhammad did. And then I'm also going to get him, I'm going to take him down and I'm going to rough him up a little bit there and make him work hard to get back to his feet. And in that way, eat up a significant portion of every single round. Uh, I was really surprised that Luke wasn't able to stop more of those takedowns. I was surprised he wasn't able to just make some mid-fight adjustments when when he had a chance to see what Bilal Muhammad was doing. Because even like when you get to the third round, you can tell what this guy's going to do, like what his his thinking is in this fight, and still he's just following. Muhammad around just sort of just trying to track him down uh, not really managing to, to cut off the cage and, and get him trapped at any one point and then you're so focused on just getting him to stop moving and getting him to where you can hit him that you're forgetting about your own defense like striking and and takedown defense uh, and he's exploiting that and it's like Dessente Luque still had some really good moments in this fight. He was tagging him with that left hook. He had Blah Muhammad hurt at one yeah. point. He arguably came way closer to finishing the fight than Blah Muhammad ever did. But it still was like a multifaceted game plan that worked on a few different levels and where he's using the takedown and the fear of the takedown to set up some striking. and He's using his own movement to nullify some of your striking offense. It was a smart way to go about it. And honestly... If that's what it takes for him to get a win here, rather than to go out there, plant his heels, uh, swing for the fences, and get knocked out, like, then that's definitely the preferable way. People will forget about their disappointment with it over time. It might not be the one that springboards you instantly into prominence, just because you know people are gonna kind of go ho hum in the immediate aftermath. But you still got a win over Vicente Luque, and and that's not a small thing.
0: So, actually, what you're saying to me right now is that the one thing people will remember is the name. I feel like people are going to remember the name. You know what they said on the broadcast that I thought seemed insane, but actually proves out to be true? That this was Vicente Luque's first five-round fight in his career? That this dude has been in the UFC since 2015? This was his 18th fight in the octagon. And, by the way, overwhelmingly successful. Vicente Luque has been overwhelmingly successful. This was his fourth loss in the UFC. Uh, He hadn't been in any main events, hadn't been in any five-rounders. This was his first one. That's crazy to me uh, to to think about that. There was also some priceless cornering in this fight. Not only the, the Bilal Muhammad's coach telling him he had to fight his heart out for the last 10 minutes, but I also really enjoyed after the second round, Vicente Luque's coach saying, Well, uh, now we know how he likes to do his takedowns. <laughs> so that'll help with our defense. Yep. Now we know we- what we need to defend, just like mm-hmm. chef's kiss. That's that's such good cornering. Just like, well, now we've seen what he what he wants to do, so now we know how we can defend it.
1: There also in Bilal Muhammad's corner was a literal they they went right from I need you to fight your heart out for this last ten minutes, and then that, he then pivoted to Coach, what do you got?
0: Yeah, he did say he Coach, what do you got? Did I both
1: of it. those like right back to back? I was like, man, this guy is he's read the Chad Dundas playbook on how to corner a fighter because inspiration, Coach, what do you got?
0: You could also tell that there were some big momentum swings in this fight just because the live odds changed so much. Like Bilal Muhammad came in as a slight underdog. By the start of round three, he was a three to one favorite. And then Vicente Luque had his best round in round three after his coach told him, now we know how he likes to do his takedowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the fight where, or that's the round where he almost finished the fight. He had landed, landed, a couple of left hooks, had Bilal Muhammad hurt. Uh, start of round four, the, the odds were back. The odds were back where they started. Vicente Luque was the favorite again. And I was just sort of like, man, thank God I wouldn't even know how to try to bet on live odds if I wanted to because these are crazy. Yeah.
1: No, I was thinking that I don't like the live odds for that reason. It makes me feel crazy. When when shit like it makes me feel like it's just like a frantic like manic swings back and forth. I'm like, I, don't know, I don't know what's going on anymore. Fortune's been made and lost just in the 10 minutes that the, uh, since this fight started to now.
0: Like, c- it's like day trading during the fight. Yes. Who knows what will happen. I'll tell you the one reason I do like the live odds and that it is like it is like a literal uh visual signpost to the UFC broadcast team that perhaps the narrative they had entering the fight wasn't the right one. Cause then you get to round three and you're like, Oh, all of a sudden Bilal Muhammad is a three to one favorite to win this thing. So there's that. But I agree with you too many swings too crazy. Yeah. All right. That's people are going to be
1: like putting a gun in their mouth. Like it's the collapse of 29 or whatever. I can't, I can't take it.
0: Chad, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, we were just talking about how long it has been since John Jones fought in the UFC, a hair over two years at this point, since the last time we saw him actually compete in the octagon was his win against Dominic Reyes at UFC 247, which was February 8th of 2020. Uh, He obviously has had some stuff happen in his personal life. He has had a... Very high profile contract dispute with the UFC. He has made these promises that he's heading up to heavyweight long standing now. And up until very recently, it just felt like there hadn't even been a peep about actually getting John Jones back in the cage. This week, I believe he was doing an interview with TMZ Sports as he is so often apt to do. Dana White, in in his kind of trademark offhand fashion, mentions that the UFC summer schedule is going to be crazy, like it always is. uh, And he hopes that Jon Jones will be part of it and that Stipe Miocic makes sense. And lo and behold, we've got some reports out after that, that we are targeting that July 2nd pay-per-view, which at this point doesn't really have a main event, doesn't have too many fights booked for it. And man, if we could get ourselves into a John Jones, Stipe Miocic interim heavyweight title fight, I think I speak for the entire co-main event universe when I say, give it to me, it's mine, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Hashtag woodwatch. And yet also kind of feel a little bit hesitant to get too excited about it just because, you know things that have gone on yeah. up to this point that we we've been hurt before in exactly this way um but this seems like for all parties involved a good idea doesn't it yeah, like obviously absolutely. the u the ufc could use something big to put on that summer card john jones needs to get in there and uh fight a professional fighter in the heavyweight division so that this doesn't all seem like the saddest Wild goose chase that any UFC champion has ever gone on in in changing divisions needs to get some headlines up there about John Jones that are not negative and relating to him being arrested and headbutting cop cars and shit like that. Steve Miocic would like to get back in the conversation, especially since it seems like his old nemesis Big Franny and Ganu might be bolting from the UFC. It just this just works out for everybody. Plus, it'd be a fucking fun fight, man.
0: Yeah, yeah. Especially, I just say for Stipe Miocic, I would think you would want to jump all over this thing, man. Like it has been so long since you had fought in the UFC. Uh, it never felt like you got the respect that you deserved as heavyweight champion, even though at least statistically you were the greatest UFC heavyweight champion of all time. Uh, and now you get the opportunity to fight John Jones, which is going to be a huge fight should be a huge payday for you. If you have the negotiating, uh, chips to get it done and to get what you want out of it and a a great opportunity to plant your flag as, uh, you know, a a great UFC fighter, because if I'm steepy, I'm looking at those most recent John Jones fights, uh, against, uh, Dominic Reyes and, and, uh, Tiago Santos. And I'm thinking, okay, I like, I actually like what the big fellas, the bigger fellas, the bigger light heavyweights were able to get done against John Jones. So I'm going to come into this fight Uh, thinking i can do the same thing and can you imagine to be the first guy in ufc history to give john jones his first legitimate competitive loss would do wonders for the resume for the uh the public outlook for like the the profile of steve amiocic i'd be all over it and of course for john jones as you mentioned go up to heavyweight you want to be fighting for the title you don't want to get yourself into a Derek Lewis situation. You don't want to be out here fighting tied to Ivasa in your first fight. You want to go straight to the top, potentially fight for the interim title. So I think you're right. It makes it makes sense for both guys, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah. And do you right to think about like what that would do legacy-wise for Stipe? I mean, for one thing, it'd just be a big fight for him to get right back into. And uh, you also think that It'd be a pretty winnable fight with John Jones being off this long and, and uh, all the things you mentioned about how he had done against bigger light heavyweights. And especially when you think of what you bring to the table wrestling wise and just in terms of your punching power wise, Estipe, you go, this version of John Jones versus this version of me, I, I like my odds. But also, man, imagine if you could sit back and be like, I set the record for the most consecutive UFC heavyweight title defenses. I went one and one against the monster that is Francis Ngannou, and oh yeah, I beat John Jones, arguably the greatest mixed martial artist of
0: all time. Yeah, pretty good. Yep,
1: that's not bad, man.
0: Not too shabby. That's not to be able a to bad say that resume. Firehouse. Right? <laughs> yes. What'd yeah. you do this weekend, uh, Frank? Because I beat John Jones. Mm-hmm. Did you mo- cut the grass? Is that what you did? Played yeah. a little uh, basketball with your kids? I went to set Vegas a, and beat up John Jones. How about that?
1: Set a personal record on the bench press? Big deal. I beat John fucking Jones.
0: I guess the uh, the the real question, the million-dollar question quite literally here is if whether or not the UFC can get this done. Because uh, up to this point, especially with John Jones and Francis Ngannou at heavyweight, the UFC has been completely unwilling to... Seemingly to even budge a, a, a smidge off its stated uh, revenue goals and and fighter pay goals and all that stuff. Uh, Miocic has made noise in the past about how he wanted to be mo- paid more. Although when push came to shove, he always always signed on the line that was dotted and went out there and had his fight. John Jones has made a lot of noise at least prior to uh, this latest arrest in Vegas about wanting to get paid more, especially if he was going to fight uh in heavyweight so i'm a little bit the only concern that i have here is sort of like uh the the whimsical nature of dana white kind of being like we hope john jones will be part of it for this for our summer schedule like the question is can they actually financially in in the real world get this thing signed and, and have it go off
1: right and the question is it's one thing to be like it sure would be cool. Hope he, hope he says yes to that fight. How much do you hope? Yeah. Do you hope enough to offer him a deal that he will sign? Or do you hope enough that just like, I hope that he will agree to fight on whatever the contracted show money, show and win money for a, a fight where he's not the champion coming in looks like. That'd be great. And if he's not willing to, do, if he wants a penny more, then whatever will do something else.
0: If he wants a penny more than these guys don't really want to fight. Yep. I mean That's
1: what the, I mean, we talked about the CME uh book, the the Dana White playbook. That one, just just a single laminated sheet. You just flip it over. These guys don't want to fight.
0: Yeah. Uh, a lot of ways to
1: turn down a fight.
0: As we mentioned at the top of the show, Co Main event uh ten year anniversary could be going down that weekend in Vegas. My question is, do we need to have some party buses on standby to truck us all over to Anaheim? Just in case we got to move this event at the last minute.
1: Listen, if I don't care what they do, I don't care if they they move that event at the last minute. They can do whatever they want to do. I'm going to be poolside working on my base tan. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere.
0: Don't bother Ben folks with any breaking
1: nope. news that week. Don't bother me unless it's to hand me another umbrella drink. You know what I'm saying? You you do 10-year meetup the way you need to do it. I'm going to do it the way I need to do it.
0: I, I'm more excited than ever. All right, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, you and I, the past few months, have been struggling with this idea that we are, against all odds, maybe, coming around to like Jake Paul. Yeah. That... Every time he he starts talking about the UFC, he seems to make sense. Every time you see him talk about his own career, it seems like he has a self awareness to it. It seems like he is more often than not telling the truth, or at the very least, telling his version of the truth. Uh, and some of it has been likable. Some of it has made us feel like, you know what, perhaps our first uh, take on uh, Jake Paul was not the correct one. Maybe maybe this is actually a guy that we can get behind. I'm just saying it is almost as though Jake Paul heard that and was like, hold my beer. Because now here he is out here in the press trying to pick a fight, Ben folks, with Michael Bisping. Trying Mm -hmm. to get a boxing match with the one-eyed former UFC middleweight champion. Not just like trying to get a fight with him. He's out here openly mocking Michael Bisping for having one eye. Here is the Jake Paul quote from a video he made. I was crying earlier after he tweeted me, I was sobbing, and then I was like fuck and I started wiping my tears away with the $50 million that I made last year from fighting. In my last fight, by the time round three was over, I made more money than he did in his whole entire career. So I get why he's mad at the new kid on the block talking all this shit. And when he looks at his bank account, guys, you may not know this, he only sees half of it. So he really thinks he made half of that amount of money since he only has one eye.
1: That doesn't even really make sense.
0: You know what the next line is from Jake Paul? But the eye jokes are not funny. (laughs) Oh, okay. I truly don't think it's funny. It's, it's mean. I am sorry. (laughs) I'm just saying, Jake Paul, man, you almost had us. Why you got to do this? Why why you got to be making fun of Michael Bisping's eye, trying to fight another aging former UFC champion that you will no doubt defeat in a boxing match? I'm just saying, man. It's right there. We want to like you. It's right there within your grasp, and it's like you don't even care. I'm just saying. Because
1: if you you have one eye, you still see all the same.
0: You shouldn't. It's not... It's not worth trying not, to break it down.
1: It's not like if you look at the number four, but you only have one eye, it shows up as a two.
0: <laughs> That's not...
1: Come on. like All I ask, if you're going to make a tasteless joke about this eye injury that the guy came by honestly in the sport of professional fighting as he gave his entire life over to it, at least make it make some kind of internal sense. Is that too much to ask? Apparently, yes. Okay. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, you know, you mentioned the stuff that happened this weekend where we're asking this fighter, hey, why did you suddenly need to mention the guy who uh, the U.S. has said is uh, a a major, like, mafia figure and cocaine trafficker in your post-fight speech? That seems like an odd time for you to mention that. Uh, It also made me think about you see some of the reactions by fans online after that. Uh, then you think about the thing we talked about on Friday about Krim Zidane's story about uh, the Chechen warlord Ramzan Kadyrov and his connection to several UFC and MMA figures uh, up to and including Kamsat uh, that story in the New York Times. The, the fan reaction of that one was also pretty similar. Like, how dare you point out this thing? And it's not even a thing where anybody uh, like disagrees that it's true. Anybody takes issue with any of the facts you are alleging. Everybody pretty much agrees. Like, yeah, this guy, very, very cozy with this dictator. So are a bunch of other fighters who aren't from there, but have been paid to go take part in it. Uh, This guy, we all just heard him. Shout out, Daniel Kinahan. So there's no question about whether or not it's true. But how dare you even talk about it? How dare you point out that it's true? How dare you make me think about a thing without my permission? That's really what it comes down to from a lot of these people. And I guess I'm just saying, what the fuck do these people think the media is? Like, I saw somebody even responding, how dare you bring this stuff into my entertainment sport? First of all, fuck you. It does not belong to you. you. You see this as just for pure entertainment. That's fine. Nobody else out there is under any kind of obligation to twist themselves into knots, avoiding anything you might find uncomfortable while you turn off your brain and watch this sport. That is not how any of that works. I don't know where these people got it in their heads that the only way you can even bring anything up is if they're okay with it first. That's just not, not how this works, not how it has ever worked. And frankly, if you are that fragile that you cannot even hear to have this, you cannot stand to have this stuff that is factually true and clearly very relevant in people's lives, brought up and asked to them to their faces when they have a microphone in front of them, then maybe you just shouldn't be watching that shit to begin with. Maybe you need to turn it off whenever anybody is interviewed ever and only turn it on for the fight's part because that's clearly all you can handle. I'm just saying.
0: Just saying. All right. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Ben and I will be over at the Patreon page all week. We got the Wednesday live chat, Thursday doing the damn thing, Friday, the power hour. And of course, get all the details on the co-main event podcast, 10 year anniversary meetup in Las Vegas coming in July. Get over there and sign up. $1 gets you in the door. For the live chat so hit us up over there patreon.com slash co event as for right now though thanks everybody for listening we are done we are through we are out i'm always just amazed that those people blame the media for, for, for bringing politics into it you know like you know guys in the cage talking about Daniel Kinnan, then you ask him about it and they're like why did the media like we did bring it up it was the guy he mentioned he talked about him in the cage and stopped bringing politics politics into mma it's like we didn't we didn't bring him in it was when the guy went to the republican national convention twice and had brought donald trump out to the fights and when bryce mitchell went on the thing and talked all the crazy conspiracy stuff and colby covington made it his whole gimmick and stopped bringing politics into him and we didn't we didn't bring it in
1: like like we're just combing through uh Financial records to find that Colton Covington made a donation or something, and then being like, "Ha! We caught ya. No, you!" No, he's made it a centerpiece of his personality.